Um, I'm aware that's quite a long chapter, and we've just read quite a long chapter from quite a long section of David's life, and I think it would be helpful for us to take a wee minute and think about where we've come from since we started 2 Samuel chapter 1. Whenever we started 2 Samuel chapter 1, we saw how David was acting as a very honorable uh, commander within the army. Even whenever Saul, who was plotting to try and kill him, uh, was killed, David still honored Saul in various ways. David showed that even though Saul had tried to kill David on multiple occasions, David still respected Saul as God's appointed king. And David then became king, and whenever he was king, we saw how he defeated the various peoples around him, like the Ammonites, the Jebusites, and some of the Philistine armies. We saw how he took Jerusalem back from the Jebusites. We saw how not only that, but he managed to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence dwelling with Israel, into Jerusalem to symbolize that David is not just bringing a military victory back to Jerusalem, but he's also bringing the presence of God back. We saw how David time and time again was the right king, the right man in the right place doing the right thing. He was the king after God's own heart. We see how David, over the first chapter section of this book, is a king who is a leader, not just militarily and not just politically, but spiritually for the people of God at this time. And then something happens. And that was a few weeks ago, whenever we read about David and Bathsheba. And we began to see David began to not be quite the king that everyone wanted him to be. The chapter begins by saying, at the time of year when kings go out to war, David was in Jerusalem. And from that verse, we have seen a steady decline of David. We've seen how his sin is brought before him by Nathan, and he repents of it. But even after his sin with Bathsheba is repented of, we see how things are not quite right. We see how Ammon, his oldest son, lusts after um, his do- uh, David's other daughter, Tamar, and he even rapes her. We see how Absalom murders Ammon. We see how Ammon, after the murder, flees away from the face of David. And we see David's life becoming a lot more chaotic, and it's about to get worse in following chapters. And even whenever we see all this, we see that sin has been rampant in the life of David. And even in this chapter, which we might think ends on a lovely high note, where we read this lovely story of David's oldest son and heir, Absalom, returning into favor from banishment and David kissing him. Do you notice what the following heading is in your Bibles immediately after that, after David kisses Absalom? It says Absalom's conspiracy. Even what looks like a high note in this chapter has a sinister twist whenever we see that David has been manipulated by Absalom to bring him closer to the reins of power. Why has this happened? Why has this happened? Why has God's king fallen so far? Well, it helps if we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, 
Whenever Nathan reminds David of all the sin that he's committed, there's a curse that was put upon him. In verses 10 and 11, it says, Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Nathan says that a result of David's sin, the sword will never depart from his house and calamity will rest upon him. And some of you are hopefully rightly thinking at this stage, but David confessed his sin. David was told by Nathan that his sins were borne away. You know, we read the likes of Psalm 51 that says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Blot my sins out from your sight. And we see how David confessed his sin and his sins were forgiven by God. So why is all this calamity happening? Why is all this turmoil happening within the royal family, even when David's sin's forgiven? And the reason for that is that something we know all too well. We can have our sins forgiven, but our sins still have consequences. Because we can talk about sin two different ways. We can talk about sin as a verb, or we can talk about sin as a noun. Usually we talk about sin as a verb, it's something we do. You know, I sinned whenever I did X, Y, or Z. Sin is maybe the most common way we would describe it, even as summed up in the shorter catechism, when is it, what is sin? Sin is any transgression off or lack of conformity onto the law of God. It's breaking the rules. That's what sin is. That's so often what we think what sin is. It's a doing thing. It's something we do. It's a verb. But sin's also a noun. Because we see that whenever Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree that they were commanded not to in the garden, it wasn't just that they did sin, but sin, the noun sin, entered into the world. The Shorter Catechism is another question that asks, into what estate did the first parents fall? Our first parents fell into an estate of sin and misery. It wasn't just that Adam and Eve sinned, it was that now the world they lived in was a world of sin. Sin became a noun. The earth began to grow weeds. Work felt like toil. Childbirth became agony. Sin became a noun. And that's what we see working out in this passage, that sin has effects beyond the moment, beyond the second that we commit it, that there's consequences. I'm gonna see that in three different ways this morning, and I managed to get three days for the first time ever. I've got a proper Presbyterian sermon. Three points, all with the same letter in them. We're going to see how sin has an effect on David. We're going to see how sin has an effect on his descendants. And we're going to see sin's defeat. So the first thing we see is sin's effect on David. Do you notice how passive David is in this passage? David's a king. David's meant to be the head honcho. David is meant to be the guy who's telling people what to do and where to do it and why to do it. But in this passage, what we see is David being dictated to. David being manipulated, David not fulfilling his role as the ruler of the whole kingdom of Israel. And we have seen this now for several chapters. Whenever we have needed David to speak up, he's been silent. Because because of his sin, the first thing we see about him is he's become indifferent. He's become indifferent. Whenever he sees Ammon lusting after his sister, he's silent. 
Whenever Ammon rapes his sister Tamar, he's silent. Whenever Absalom murders Amnon, it is only afterwards, whenever he's dealing with the body and the, the funeral, that David weeps and mourns and says something. And even then, he doesn't address Absalom. He doesn't call him out for it. Whenever Absalom, to get the attention of somebody who's helped him out so much, Joab, in the chapter we just read, Absalom sets a field on fire. Does David talk about it? No. David is quiet about sin, and he is silent about sin, because he's growing indifferent to it. And we know that whenever we begin to tolerate sin, it is but a slippery slope to see it taking more and more, taking it for it taking greater and greater hold in our lives as it gets a foothold. It's uncomfortable to point out sin, isn't it? And it's uncomfortable to have our own sins pointed out. And yet if we really love people and sin has the effect that we think it has, there's a great need to point it out. You maybe know that famous quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson that says that if you sow a thought, you reap an action. And if you sow an act, you reap a habit. And if you sow a habit, you reap a character. And if you sow a character, you reap a destiny. The more we entertain sin, the more we entertain the thought of it, the more we are likely to commit the act of it. And the more we commit the act of it, the more likely it becomes a habit, the more it becomes a character. Eventually, until we see that we are ruled by sin in every aspect of our being, because sin is not just the bad thing we do in the moment, but it affects and changes us. There's a Dutch polymath and theologian called Herman Bavink, who he wrote this on sin. He says that, in that every way, every sin becomes a habit, a tendentious pattern, a passion that controls a person like a tyrant. Humans are changeable, extraordinarily moldable and pliable. They adapt themselves to all occasions. They accommodate themselves to all fashions. And those who commit sins become the servants of sin. A crime, a lie, a theft, a murder never vanishes in the moment it was committed. It's not that our sin vanishes, but it corrupts, it pollutes, and it changes because it makes us indifferent to the danger of sin. Um, I wonder how many of you know a grumpy wee old man. Don't say any names. Um, you know the sort of wee old man I'm talking about? You know, they're usually quite tight-fisted, the sort of people who wake up in the middle of the night just to make sure they're not losing any sleep. You know, the sort of grumpy, kind of miserly, old Scrooge of a figure. I'm sure we all know them. I know I do. I fear I'm far too often like one of them. But I want to ask you something. How do you think those people got like that? How do you think they got like that? Do you think whenever they were a teenager, they thought, do you know what I can't wait to be? I can't wait to be the sheer embodiment of a Disney villain. I can't wait to be somebody who's known as being grumpy and grouchy and a gurn. I can't wait to be somebody who's snide and sarcastic and never capable of expressing a genuine emotion. They didn't set out to act like that, sure. They didn't, they didn't set out to be that. But bit by bit, year by year, they grew indifferent to their own sins of self-absorption, of anger, of selfishness, of their own cynicism. And over a lifetime, sin not only became the bad things that they did, but the sin in their lives changed who they were. 
They keep indifferent to their own sin and unable to see the effects of it. We see sin makes us indifferent. But we also see in this passage that sin makes David blind. If you look down with me, whenever the wise woman comes to David in this passage, this wise woman tells a story and we might be tempted to think that this story is almost akin to the story that Nathan came and told David to try and get him to see his sin, but it's not quite the same story. It's a wee bit different. In this story, the woman tells of how she had two sons and she's a widow. The two sons were fighting in the field. One kills the other. That now means she's only got one son left and that son would be her sole support, her sole person who could provide her with any comfort in life. And the rest of the tribe want to kill that son out of justice so that they can then steal and inherit all the stuff that the widow has. So it's kind of this complex moral argument. But she sets up this argument to try and demonstrate something, to try and pull on David's heartstrings, to try and get him to bring Absalom, the son who murdered Ammon, back into the fold. And as she tells this story, she then ends with the real kind of punch or the final punch at lands in verse 14, where she says, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But it is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. That's down in verse 14. We might think that she's doing something very godly here. You know, this woman's trying to get David to act more like God. She's trying to invoke God's name and say, look, behave the way God's behaved and it'll all be okay. But really what she is trying to do is very different from what Nathan was trying to do. Whenever Nathan first went to David, he was trying to inflame David's sense of justice so David would see his own sin. But this woman is trying to play on David's sentimentality by saying, well, sure, God forgives it anyway. So why care about justice? There was a theologian and commentator, uh, W.G. Blakey, who said that Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience against his feelings. But the woman of Tekoa, as prompted by Joab, is trying to rouse his feelings as against his conscience. Absalom, because he had murdered Ammon, deserved to be punished. He deserved death in the ancient courts of Israel. He hasn't received that. He's still on a lesser, uh, a lesser sentence by being in Geshur. But this woman tries to get David to forget about any notion of justice, to let his feelings for Absalom, the fact that his heart longed for Absalom to override any sense of justice. And this is made, we see in this moment how David has been blinded by what's went on because of his sin. Because sin blinds us from what's truly right and wrong. And our feelings are the most potent way that we see that. We can sometimes have a habit of saying in church circles that the reason we knew a decision was right was because we felt peace about it. And I wonder, do we realize how sin taints what we feel? And how so often what we feel peace about are things that are not in aligned with God's will for you. Whenever Jonah flees Nineveh, or whenever he's first called to go to Nineveh, 
Even though it was God's will, he did not feel peace about it. His feelings were anything but peace, and so he fled. Whenever Jesus was in the garden before the cross, sweating drops of blood, he felt anything but peace for what God's plan was going to involve for him. Our feelings can lead us astray because sin taints what we see as right and wrong. And if we trust our own inner sense of peace as the barometer for right and wrong in our lives, we are leaving ourselves wide open for manipulation by sin. That's what's happened to David here in this passage. He has went with feelings rather than justice, trusting himself over God's, over God's revealed will. The second thing we see then is sin's effect on David's descendants. Um, we can see David's house, David's family is a mess at this stage. Could you imagine Christmas in their house? It would be awful. When we see how sin has had havoc, not just upon David, but upon the rest of his house, as it was told was going to happen in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, now therefore the sword will not depart from your house, and out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. And that's because sin doesn't just affect and change us and blind us, but sin pollutes and oozes through us into even the ones we love affecting them, especially younger generations and our kids who we've influence over. And this is one of the most prominent things of our faith. Um, one of the most repeated lines in the Bible about God is this quote from Exodus 34. This is meant to be a summary of what God is like. And it starts off in a way that we really, really like. It starts off really, really positive and happily. It says, the Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We like that, don't we? That's the good part. But then we read the other part, which is, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Does this make you uncomfortable? Because it makes me uncomfortable. And there's a reason it makes us uncomfortable. We live in a culture that has a very strong view of the individual. You are an individual first and foremost. And the thought that the actions or the sins of somebody else might negatively infringe upon us, we would see as a grave injustice because we think we're all individuals, we're all our own people. We are, we are all able to craft our own futures and seal to our own destinies. And we are not influenced by the families that came from. You know, we are individuals first and foremost. And how dare somebody imply that the actions of generations before us change who we are now? We feel deeply uncomfortable with that. And yet, anecdotally, I feel we know that sin does travel down generations and does seep out through relationships. Because we all know that if you are brought up in a house where there is a lot of anger and aggression, as you get older, you will struggle with anger and aggression. If you are brought up in a home where there is some sort of substance abuse or reliance, be it alcohol dependency or anything else, as you grow up, 
you will struggle with those issues your whole lives. If you are brought up in a house where you are deprived of the care and the love that every child ought to be provided with, that will change who you are throughout the whole course of your lives because sin and the impacts of sin go down through the generations. And we all experience this. You know, how many of you when you were teenagers said, I'll never be like my mom and dad. And then suddenly, whenever you have teenagers yourselves, you find yourself parroting the same phrases that your parents said. Because we are a product of the people we came from. And our parents were sinners. And so we will be sinners. And it passes down like this because sin seeps not just through us, but into the world around us as well. Finally, we see sin's, oh, sin's defeat. Now that I've thoroughly got you all miserable and depressed, uh, we'll turn to a positive part. David's kingdom's waning. Things have not went well for David. But I would wonder if I would ask you, what caused the downfall of David's kingdom? What causes an ancient kingdom's downfall? What would you say? All the other enemies and all the ancient kings and all of the coups were not what threatened David. He could defeat every other enemy. But the one enemy he couldn't defeat was the enemy of the sin inside his own heart. When we see David as a king unable to defeat that last enemy, it evokes something in us, draws something out to say, well, what do I do? I, I don't want to live in a world like this. I don't want to live in a sinful world like this. What do I do to overcome it? And that feeling evoked in us by that dread of sin is meant to point us to the true and perfect king who defeats sin and even death itself, Jesus. Because David could never save everyone finally and completely. We can never save ourselves finally and completely, no matter how hard we try. No matter what cause we think we can give ourselves to that will make everything better and all right, be it politics or the environment or education or whatever it is, we all need freed from this last final hurdle, this last final enemy of sin and death. And there is only one person who can defeat that, and that's Jesus. It's like what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 to 57, where it says, Oh, death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news about passages like this is that the sin that ran rampant at this time will one day be conquered. The sin that you feel in your heart as you go about your week to week, the guilt and the shame that clogs your mind whenever you want to think about something else, that will one day fully and finally and completely be defeated. Whenever we read in Revelations 21, when Jesus returns and he will wipe away every tear-stained eye and death will be but a gone and distant memory. This is our hope. Sin, yes, runs rampant but it will be defeated and is being defeated each day 
as Jesus sits on his throne reigning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that though we might feel sin so acutely in our hearts, it will not get the last laugh. Lord, help us to hate sin, help us to flee sin. But above everything else, help us to look for hope in the one who defeated it finally on the cross. In Jesus, that victor's name we pray. Amen.